First Peter. It's a joy to be back with you guys. I was here about a month and a half ago, uh, and I had Genesis 14. It was it's fun to be uh, listening along this sermon series. It's been very edifying and encouraging for me. Um, but as Jake said, we're going to be <clears throat> excuse me, taking a, a little bit of a left turn. We're going to spend uh, this morning in First Peter, and I want to do something crazy this morning. I want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, last Sunday was Easter. It was Resurrection Sunday, right? Hopefully, as a church, I know as a church, you guys talk about the resurrection every Sunday, so we're going to do that again this Sunday. Our uh, D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar. He likes to say that all of human history pivots on one uh, Sunday 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave. And in particular, I want to talk about uh, how the resurrection produces within us a hope. As the people of the resurrection, uh, we have a, a living hope. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read 1 Peter 1, and we're going to be in verses 3 through 5, just those few verses, and then I'll pray for us and we will get moving. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's, sal- or who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name that according to your great mercy, the riches of your mercy and grace, you would make us a people, um, as we sung earlier, who were dead in our sins and trespasses. Our sins were like crimson, um, but you brought us alive together with Jesus Christ and you made us uh, white as snow through the resurrection. we, We praise you for that. And we pray that today you would root that reality ever deeper in us, that we are alive in Jesus Christ, and that we would have a deep and abiding and growing hope in Jesus Christ alone. Would you minister to us today through your word? We do this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. So many students and scholars of World War II make this claim that on June 6th, 1944, the war ended. If you know World War II history, you know that that is D-Day. So on D-Day, some 1,000 vessels carrying about 200,000 or so uh, soldiers crossed the English Channel to storm the beaches of Normandy. And this, this battle, D-Day, turned out to be the most decisive and important uh, <coughs> battle, not only in World War II, but probably in modern military history. And that's because on D-Day, the war, the, the momentum, the tides of the war turned so much so in the favor of the Allied forces that the Axis forces knew that they probably stood no chance to regain momentum and move towards victory. However, the war did not end on D-Day. The war ended on VE Day, which came on May 8th, 1945. So there was nearly a year between the storming of the beaches of Normandy and the concessions by the concession by the Germans effectively ending World War II. 
So the assessment that World War II ended on June 6th is made by students and scholars some 70 years later with people who didn't actually fight in the war or were not intimately aware of the war. And and I'm from Los Angeles, and I vividly remember in second grade going to the Museum of Tolerance there in Los Angeles. This is a museum that's dedicated uh, primarily to uh, the genocide of the Jews in World War II. And and at one point, uh, this man named Barry came out to give a lecture to all the the students that were on on this field trip. And, And Barry was a Jewish American World War II veteran. He gave this really um, stirring speech about the realities that he faced and that, 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 that the Jews faced in World War II. And, and I bet if I were to go up to Barry and say to him, hey, Barry, when did the war end? Did it end on D-Day or V-E Day? He would probably be a little bit bewildered and look at me and say, well, of, of course the war ended on V-E Day. And the reason why he would say that is even though D-Day turned the momentum of the war so much in favor of the Allies that victory was surely coming, he still, for 11 months, along with his comrades, had to sleep in foxholes and dodge bullets and eat their rations and carry their equipment and fight the enemy every single day for the next 11 months until VE Day came. And today, we gather... In the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that our decisive battle has come and gone 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ was resurrected, our spiritual D-Day came. The tides of the war turned so much so in our favor that sin, death, and the devil have no chance at victory. It has come. However, VE Day has not yet come in full. We live in this everyday battle where we are fighting the flesh, we are fighting the enemy, we are fighting the world that we live in. And 1 Peter here is going to give us some instructions about how we should live. So 1 Peter has this theme about the kingdom of God. Here in the beginning, uh, in verses 1 and 2, he talks about being elect exiles. So here's what he's talking about. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven However, you still live here in this world as strangers to this world because you're citizens of another world. However, you can't see that world, but what you can see is the world that you are existing in. And this entire book, we can say, is about the kingdom of God. We get this picture in Genesis 1 and 2 about God's kingdom. Graham's Goldsworthy, who's a uh, New Testament author and scholar, defines the kingdom of God like this. It's God's place under God's rule where God's people exist. So God's people in God's place under God's rule. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we get the picture of God's rule being perfect and God's people receiving his rule perfectly. They had perfect harmony with him and and with each other, perfect (laughs) fellowship with God. They existed in harmony with one another. However, in the very next story in in Genesis chapter 3, we see sin enter into the world. And now that harmony with God has been fractured and the perfect peace of God's kingdom has been interrupted with chaos and suffering and, and brokenness. And we still exist in a Genesis 3 type of world. However, our D-Day has come when Christ rose from the grave. The tide has turned. The war is won. The kingdom of God is now intersecting the earth. However, VE Day has not yet come. This is what we call the now and the not yet. 
of God's kingdom. So for God's people, this means we're living between two worlds, citizens of heaven but strangers here. Like Barry, the World War II veteran who knew total victory was coming one day, we know that total victory is coming for us one day when Jesus Christ returns again. But in the meantime, Barry still had to fight against the Nazis. We still fight here in this world. However, we fight as a people full of hope with a confident assurance that our VE day is indeed coming ever so soon. So from these three verses, if, if you just tune me out for the rest of this morning, here's what I want you to walk away with. Here's what I want you to know. That as a people of the resurrection, as the people of God, we possess, in our possession, is a living hope. As a people of the resurrection, we possess a living hope. And we're going to see that in three ways. These are the three ways we see that in these verses. One, we have a living hope because we are a born-again people. Two, we have a living hope because we have an inheritance in Christ. And then three, we are a people of the living hope because we possess security in God's power. Look back to verse 3 with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you you see the worship with which Peter begins that passage? He praises God because God had saved him. God had saved his people. And look at the argument Peter makes here. He says, okay, I'm, I'm worshiping you, God. Bless your name, God. Why? Because according to your great mercy, God, you caused us to be born again. The motivation for Peter and God's people to be born again is not Peter and God's people. God is the ultimate cause of salvation, and the means of our salvation is his great mercy. And the result of our salvation is his praise and worship. But then Peter continues and gives another uh, add-on to this argument. God doesn't just save us and then cage us up and say, okay, this is your get out of hell free card. Just wait till I return. But no, he unleashes us with a living hope because we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, because we exist in the South, um, I think this language, born again, can lose some of its meaning. So when, we, when my family and I relocated from the West Coast down to the South, we would get in conversations in the grocery store or at the park or wherever else we found ourselves, and we'd start engaging people with the gospel and having spiritual conversations, and, and then you, know, you naturally get to the question of, are, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? And, and so often the, the phrase that we would get back is, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm a born-again. That's, that's me trying an accent. I can't do that. Um, yeah, that, I won't do that again. I promise you that much. Um, and and I, I started noticing this theme. So I had to, you know, my mind, the way it works, I had to dig into that and ask, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? And some of the answers I was getting is, well, my family of origin or even my political party, those kind of things. That's why I'm I'm a born-again Christian, because I have these things in my background. However, the language here is completely giving us this beautiful reality that you once, as a Christian, were dead in your sins, but God 
bestowed upon you entirely new life. He brought you up to new life. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, not only did God the Father raise him again and give him new life by the power of his spirit, but to all who are united to Christ in faith, he gave new life. This is the reality of the Christian. And this reality brings about a great living hope within us. Primarily, this should produce hope in us because God, we are no longer estranged to him, orphaned, but rather he is our father. Like in a very real, real spiritual sense, God is your father. Like what does this mean for us? This means that you, as a child of God, are beloved. Like everything that this Bible describes about Jesus Christ as the Son of God, everything for the child of God that, that God says to his Son, he says to you. Like, if you are in Christ, everything that God says about Jesus, he says about you. Now, I don't know about you, but that produces a living hope in me. Because as I look to the New Testament and see Jesus Christ, what I see is, man, I fall short of that. I don't live as Christ lived. I don't love as Christ loved but it's not my merit. This is according to God's great mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that God says about his son, he says about you if you are in Christ. That's freeing. Man, that's freeing. This also means that our Father in heaven only gives and does good to his children. He only gives and does good to his children. So my, my daughter is two years old, and she has a sweet tooth. I mean, she, her, her pajamas, literally, we let her pick out her own pajamas. They're covered in ice cream cones because she loves ice cream so much. Uh, we, she did a little, like, she got a little Easter basket last weekend, and um, there was all kinds of candy, and it was sent by her grandma. And, and she opens it up at, like, 7 in the morning, and there's Tootsie Roll Pops. And she's like, ah, and throwing them in her mouth and eating them. We're like, no, no, don't eat that right now. And, and there's oftentimes, like, she lo- when I'm saying she loves candy, I mean, this is next-level stuff. And, and uh, so often, if we're getting ready to maybe go to church or go on a long drive or going somewhere where she has to just sit still and be quiet, she, she wants candy. And we have to say, no, like, you cannot have this candy. And her little two-year-old mind thinks this is the worst thing that could ever happen to her. Like, oh my gosh, you are the worst dad in the world. You know, those kind of things. And, and, and so, so what we know is the, that, that my wife and I were so much more wise than she is and, and so much more knowing than she is about life and what's good for her. And so we withhold things from her because we know it's ultimately for her good. Now, there's oftentimes in our walk with God as our father, us as his children, he is withholding things from us, even good things from us, because he is all-knowing, because he is all-loving, because he is all-good. And our natural reaction is to look at him and say, no, you're a terrible father, but he's not. What everything he gives and does to you as a son or daughter of God is good. This also means to be born again into the family of God that your earthly last name, your earthly family of origin, your earthly lineage does not define you. It means that your identity, your status, the essence of who you are is wrapped up into the statement that you are born again into the Father's family. You are defined by that. 
your history, the circumstances you faced, the father or maybe the, the father you didn't have does not define you. Though they shape you, though that informs your realities of how you view the world and interact with the people around you, it means that you are no longer bound up in that, but you are freed from that, set into the Father's family to walk in the newness of life. It means that you are an entirely new person with a new heart. Second Corinthians would tell you that you are a completely new creation in Christ. So there's one way to say this. You, you, at once you were orphaned, but now you are adopted. This is your new reality. And the living hope you get from this will grow as you more deeply understand this reality. So we must ask God to conform our minds to this reality and our hearts to this reality. Because it is true about you. You may not fully understand this. You may be a brand new Christian. You may be walking away from the Lord. You may not be a Christian at all. But once you become united to Christ in faith, born again into the Father's family, this is your 100% full reality. And as you mature in the faith, you can say your spiritual maturity can be measured on the spectrum of how childlike you are in your faith, of how much you approach the Father as your Father. And that will produce within you a growing and a confident Hope. So we must ask ourselves a couple questions in light of that. First, have you been born again into the Father's family? Have you accepted the free gift of grace and repented of your sins, turned to him in faith and said, will you be my father? He will do that for you. Next, where is your hope or your thinking wrapped up in the old creation way? the dead in your sins way, the orphan way, preventing you from living as a born-again child of God. A couple indicators of some faulty thinking that means you are wrapped up in your old reality, not your new reality, is when you think about God as your father, you project upon him the failings of the men in your life. Even if you were in a family that was loving and godly and the gospel was at the center of your home, that was an imperfect family. Maybe you grew up in a family that was just chaotic and broken and full of suffering and sin. One thing we all have to fight to do, and it's hard, one thing we all have to fight to do is to not look at our past and say, that's how God acts towards me. Because that's not how God acts towards you. He is the, per the perfect father. Another uh, sign of some faulty thinking of the old creation type of way is that when the father disciplines you, you resist it as if it's done in spite. When the father disciplines you, and he will, it is for your good. It is to make you more holy. It is to make you more humble. It is to make you more understand who he is and who you are in light of him. Another, another sign of some faulty thinking is that when you have a need, and we all have needs, right? When you have a need, your first thought is, how can I or how can someone around me meet that need? Versus when I have a need, the first thing I do is drop to my knees and plead with my father, God, will you provide for me? Because this will show your dependence upon your father. 
The problem is with all of these lines of thinking, projecting upon God false images of him as our father, looking at his discipline as if it's done in spite, not going to him with our needs. The problem with these lines of thinking is that they ultimately create an endless cycle of getting our hopes up and then being let down because we place our hope on humans and ourselves. And that always fails us. But our Father in heaven never fails us as his children. And this should produce within us a living and confident hope in your Father. So our first reality as a people of the resurrection means we possess a living hope because we are born again into the Father's family. The next reality as a people of the resurrection means we have a living hope because of our inheritance in Christ. Look at verse 4 with me. So he ends verse 3 that you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So God has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a living hope. And then Peter adds on another two, not only to a living hope, but to an inheritance. Born again people, the Bible is telling us right here that you have a share in God's kingdom. To understand this term, inheritance, we need to do some historical and cultural work on the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, was given the promise of an inheritance as well. Uh, Their inheritance was a physical land. It was the land of Canaan right there in the Middle East, the modern Middle East. Uh, This was known as the promised land. This was their inheritance. And the inheritance promised to God's people was each of the 12 tribes of Israel would get a little piece, a little share of that land to cultivate, to work, to live on, for God to provide for them through it. But Peter is saying here that we, as God's people, we do have a promised land. However, our inheritance is not a physical, earthly piece of land, but rather a share of God's kingdom, a share of the new creation of God, the one-day coming kingdom of God when Jesus returns and ushers it in in full. And you get every blessing that comes along with a share in God's kingdom. And the chief among those blessings is that you get the fullness of God. You get the full presence of God in his kingdom, the unveiled face of God. And this inheritance, Peter tells us, is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. To understand that, you must contrast that again with the Old Testament inheritance. Like like theirs is a mere foreshadowing of the new covenant Inheritance. Theirs is on earth. Ours is in heaven. Theirs can decay. Ours is imperishable. It is not subject to decay. Theirs can be polluted. Ours is undefiled. It is not polluted. No evil can intrude upon that. Theirs can lose its value. Ours is unfading. Over time, our inheritance will not wither. It will not grow dim. It will not lose its beauty. Theirs can be taken from them. And matter of fact, it was taken from them on multiple occasions. Ours cannot be taken from us. Peter tells us it is being kept in heaven for you. And, and oftentimes when we read you in the New Testament, this is how we say y'all. This means like the people of God. But this time, 
This is the singular. This is not the plural you. This is the singular you. So we can picture Peter up here looking at every Christian in the room saying, your inheritance is kept for you individually. Yes, all of us together, but you individually as a person of God have a share in God's kingdom. Do you remember the financial crisis of 2008? My parents own a small trucking company back in California, and they made it through the crisis. The business is still going, but there were a lot of ups and downs for a few years there. There were, there were months where, uh, many months, where they did not, as owners of the business, personally take any kind of payment because they had to pay the bills and they had to pay their employees. There were many months where they had to sell off some equipment in order to, to make uh, pay. There were many lean months in there where they had to scrape and, and grasp and, and move some things around in order to get by. But in the midst of all of this, with the business stuff going on in the background, my parents sat down, my siblings and I, and they looked at us and they said, any inheritance that we have stored up for you guys, it is set aside. And if this business goes, then, then that will be according to what God has for us, but this inheritance will stay. It cannot be touched and we will not touch it. It will be there for you one day. Our inheritance as children of my parents, was not in jeopardy. And believer, your inheritance as being one who is united to Christ is not in jeopardy. It cannot be taken from you. It is kept in heaven, in the presence of the God of heaven. And so we possess, because of that, a living and active a growing hope. Our circumstances here will change over time. They, they will challenge us. Much of 1 Peter has to do with the trials and suffering that God's people will experience in the everyday stuff of life. We will get beat up. We will get torn down. We will be persecuted. There will be mountaintops and there will be valleys. But God has given us a living hope that one day there is a day coming when none of those trials will exist. It will be nothing but mountaintop, an ever-growing mountaintop, where we are ever-expanding in our love and worship and joy in the presence of God. This is our inheritance. And as a people of the resurrection, we possess a living hope because that day is surely coming. It is coming. And the third reality that we have as a people of the resurrection that produces within us a living hope is security. Look at verse 5. So our inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So I've spent a good chunk of time in Cambodia doing some mission work over there. Um, and, and on one of the trips there, uh, a lot of the guys on the trip were given the responsibility to go to some, some railroad tracks outside of the main capital city, Phnom Penh, and do some evangelism on the streets there. And uh, for many of us, that stirs up no meaning. But if you know any Cambodian history, you know that has deep meaning. In the, the 1960s, a, a man named Pol Pot came to power in Cambodia. He led something called the Khmer Rouge, a party called the Khmer Rouge. And in 1975, the Khmer Rouge overthrew the Cambodian government and took over power in the country. And for the remaining years of the 1970s, they committed mass genocide of their own people. Somewhere between 1.7 and 2 million people were murdered at the hands of the Khmer Rouge. 
And the push, the ideology that Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge had was to rid Cambodia of any Western influence that was beginning to encroach upon them in order to preserve their ancient traditions and religions. So this means that they targeted anyone that was educated, was a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, or a Westerner themselves. And in the minds of many people throughout Southeast Asia, Westerner means this. It means white and it means Christian. That's what Westerner means. So this particular location we were going to outside of the main city had the few remaining families and faction of people that still believed Pol Pot's ideology even though they were defeated. And so they're telling me, like, let's just do some math here. Like, I'm, I'm white. I'm going to do evangelism, so I'm Christian. I am indeed from the West, and you're sending me to this location with this faction of people that's trying to target and kill me. I'm not going. It did not add up in my mind. And about this time that I'm having this meltdown on behalf of my team, this guy, Panette, walks into the room. So Panette is a native Cambodian. Uh, he's a believer, and he has made it his mission to go share the gospel with these people, these people who murdered his parents and his grandparents and his aunts and his uncles. He has almost no family left, but he has made it his mission to go share the love of Christ with them. And he comes over, and he calms us all down, and he says, hey, because you're with me, you'll be okay. Because they trust me, they will trust you. And so we go, and sure enough, in and out, just fine, nothing went wrong because we were in the presence of Panette. We were safe. Here in verse 5, we have the ultimate promise of the ultimate guard himself, God. God, by his power, will guard you until the day of Jesus' return. One commentator has translated this verse this way. God is continually using his power to guard his people until ultimate salvation. And again, we have the transition from verse 4 to verse 5 with the singular. So your inheritance is kept for you individually. And then Peter just keeps going saying, who? You who? So imagine Peter saying to each of us who are in Christ, God is guarding you by his power. God is guarding you by his power. God is guarding you by his power. Like, isn't that comforting? I got to walk through the railroad tracks in Cambodia because I knew the comfort of Panette's presence with me. And now I get to walk through this Christian life because the comfort of God's power and presence in my life. And, and just from these few verses, let's talk about how powerful this power is. Like, this is the power that caused us to be born again, to go from death to life. Dead things don't just wake up to life. God's power brought us to life. This is the power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave. This is the power that is storing up in a heavenly inheritance for us that cannot be touched, marred, stained, ruined, stolen. This is the power that is guarding you. Doesn't that produce a level of security within you? Doesn't that security produce a living hope in you? A confidence for the day to come that we are assured that we will get that. So here's one way to think about it. God has promised you an inheritance to come one day. Not only is he guarding that inheritance, but he is guarding the heir itself. You one day will receive that inheritance because God is keeping you by his power. Trust me, if God was not keeping you by his power, you would surely lose that inheritance 
But God is keeping you. He is sustaining you. He is preserving you. He is carrying you through this life. But here's my problem. I place my security in so many things other than God's power. Like, like my intellect, my mind, how fast I can think, my wit. I begin to place my security in that and hide behind those things. My personality, I can begin to place my security in how much I can get others to like me. My family, my wife and my kids, they can become my security because trust me, they're a lot more friendly than I am. Like my, the job I have, the paycheck that's coming, the bank account, whatever we have stored up just in case of a rainy day, those can produce security within me. The thing is, God did not design those things to be our security. Like a rotting foundation, they cripple under the pressure of me making them my security. And that's where all hope is lost, and I get let down. But God has generously given of himself and his power to be our absolute security. The question is, where have you placed your security? Because that will show where your hope is. If your security is in anything other than God and his power, your hope will prove to be dead. It will let you down. But if your security is properly placed in the Lord and his power, your hope will be alive. It will be growing. It will be confident. So D-Day happens. Practical victory is won for Barry and his comrades, but they still had to fight every day until VE Day came. And I'm assuming during those 11 months between D-Day and VE Day, there were thousands of moments where Barry forgot that D-Day had happened. Maybe the enemy was bearing down on them. Maybe he was tired and weary. Maybe he just wanted to stop fighting because he forgot that the momentum of the war had turned in his favor. And what did that cause for him? That caused him to lose hope that VE Day was coming. And I'm sure there were thousands of moments in there where Barry remembered the storming of the beaches of Normandy and the victory that was won there on D-Day and that gave him strength and courage and boldness and confidence and hope that VE Day was coming so he could keep putting one foot in front of the other and fighting for total victory that was coming. Where, where do you find yourself this morning? Like, Christian, have you forgotten your D-Day? Have you forgotten the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you forgotten that you have been born again into the Father's family? Have you forgotten that you have a coming inheritance? Have you forgotten that God's power is guarding you right now as we speak? Have you forgotten? Because if you're like me and you have forgotten, and there are many moments where I forget, you're probably struggling. You're probably without hope. Let me call you into remembrance. Let me call you into hope because your reality as a person of the resurrection is one of a hope that is living and active and firm and sure and secure. Hope in the Lord because he is alive. Non-Christian, do you know that D-Day has happened? Do you know that Jesus Christ has taken on your sin and borne the wrath of God in your place and wiped it out 
through his death and resurrection? Do you know that he is calling you, beckoning you to receive new life through being born again? Do you know that he is offering you the eternal security and reward of an inheritance in Christ Jesus and that he will guard you until that day? Do you know that you too can walk out of here possessing that hope that is living and active and growing and firm and sure and secure? Do you know that you can walk out of here with hope in Jesus Christ? Let me plead with you, if you have not yet done that, to sit and to think and to reflect and ask Jesus, the living Christ, to reveal himself to you. My prayer is that you will walk out of here today full of hope. Now, let me land the plane with one more thing about this hope we hold Do you notice that in these three verses, there's a past, a present, and a future aspect of this hope? There's a totality to this hope we have in Jesus Christ. Look at the past tense. You were born again. That is complete. God already did this. You were born again. This is done. There's nothing you can do to lose your status as a son or a daughter of God. Your hope is rooted in the past. But there's a future tense here as well, that you will receive an inheritance. God will do this. It's being kept in heaven for you. One day it is coming, and there is nothing you can do to lose this inheritance because you are a child of God. There is a future aspect to this hope. And then there is a present tense to this hope. You are being guarded. God is doing this. God has done, God will do, and God is doing this, guarding you by his power. This is a complete, lifelong hope. Not a momentary hope. Not a flimsy hope. Not a fragile hope. This is a continual hope. A firm hope. A secure hope. A hope that is rooted in what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago when he died in our place and was resurrected on the third day, which secured our future and guards us in the presence. You may find yourself in many, I'm sure we find ourselves in many different places this morning. Some of us are walking in here full of hope. Some of us had a good week. Some of us maybe walked in here suffering. Maybe you got some news this week that broke you. But let me remind all of us that this hope you have is in Jesus Christ, not the news you receive, not the week you had, not the people in your life. This is rooted in Jesus Christ and what he did. This is your hope. You have it, believer. I pray that it will deepen. Your understanding of it will deepen And that you get to walk through the joys and the suffering of this life with this mindset. I have hope in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that though we were hopeless when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you made us alive together with Jesus Christ, made us new creations and gave us hope. And this hope will not fail us. This hope will not run out on us. This hope will not let us down because this hope is not dependent on us or our circumstances, but it is dependent on the living, ruling, reigning King Jesus. So help us, God, to not place our hope in things that don't matter, 
to not place our hope in things that you didn't intend for us to place our hope in, but help us to place our hope and fix our eyes upon the risen Savior, Jesus. And then help us to walk through this life with the sobering reality that our hope is in him, that our inheritance is coming, that we are the beloved children of God, and that you are guarding us. You are surely guarding us till the day of redemption. We praise you for that. Pray that you would root that in my brothers' and sisters' hearts. And for those that aren't united to Christ, God, I pray that you would awaken them, you would save, you would draw, and you would reorient their hopes to Jesus alone. It's for his sake that we gather. It's for his sake that we sing. It's for his sake that we preach. It's for his sake that we're here. And so I pray that we would honor him with our lips, with our thoughts, and with our actions. In Jesus' name, amen.